Today, my name is Richie Allen, and today I'm joined by Brian O'Mara, a former professional rugby player, who's today here to give us some insights uh, to a professional rugby player and talking us through how it all got started and the many highs and lows he experienced throughout his rugby journey. Anyway, to start it off, More Brian. Highs. <laughs> Brian, I must ask you, how are you anyway today? Uh, I'm great, Richie. Um, it's good to do this podcast, especially I suppose as um so many Michaels players currently in the Leinster setup are hoping to become professional players. It's good to give them a bit of balance inside what the life of a professional rugby player actually really is like. Yeah. And anyway, just to kick it all off, uh, obviously, I think we it's very important we talk about where you started playing rugby and like where did you go to school and where did you end up living and basically just tell us about your your kind of rise up through school as a young lad. Okay, I suppose... Um, same as everybody else, it's where you're born is an, um, an awful lot to do with it. I was born in Bishopstown in Cork, right next to a, a number of actually um, rugby and GA clubs. The rugby club is called Highfield, okay. and, and the GA club is called Bishopstown. And because my dad had a greater interest in rugby and played a bit himself, we joined there at the age of maybe, I don't know, six, same as most people. Um, I wouldn't have a fair amount of recollection in the early days other than training on um, a cold, wet Saturday morning, playing with an orange ball and getting bovril soup or some sort of horrible <laughs> soup after training session. Yeah. But my abiding memory anyway of my, um, my early days playing with Highfield was my dad had a shocking, hair of, uh, shocking set of grey hair. So every time I was ice kicked to touch and penalties, my dad used to run down 20 or 30 yards down the pitch and he'd put his hand up so I had to aim for him. Okay. Obviously I couldn't really miss him. If I missed touch then I was in for a bit of trouble. But uh, there were great instant days where we just loved watching rugby and I suppose you go home then in the evening and watch the old Five Nations and the excitement was just amazing. Um, from there I went to Prez Rugby School, which is a famous institute um, in Cork. I was going to go to CBC because my father actually went to CBC. Um, Prez and PBC are like Michaels and Blackrock. They absolutely hate each other. Mm. Um, it's kind of weird. The reason I didn't want to go to CBC is data scrum half. And this is, remember me now, this is the context. I'm 12 years of age. And Data Scrum Half, who I felt was a really good player. He had a massive pair of quads. He was really developed for his age. So I was like, there's no way I'm going to get ahead of him in CBC. Like, there was no such thing as pro rugby. I was like, no, no, I'm going to PBC. Plus a lot of my old school friends were in, um, from Bishops that were heading there as well. So it just seemed a natural progression. Okay. And like at that stage, I know you were quite a young boy, but was it... In the thought process of you that you were thinking, I want to be a pro rugby player, or no, was it just part people, of growing people up? Are, see, people have you need to put yourself in the context of actually what was life back in 19, say I went to school in 19, around the mid 90s, early 90s. There was no such thing as professional rugby, yeah. it just didn't exist. It was amateur. So when I went to PBC, we were really lucky, a bit like I suppose a lot of Michael's players of recent years. In my year group, we had so many players who went on to be future international rugby players. So, first of all, we were coached by Declan Kidney. Obviously, he won Ireland the Grand Slam, won two Anakin Cups. Was a, was a brilliant coach, I suppose, looking back in hindsight. 
but we all thought so many good players in those years like Ron Agar, Frankie Sheehan, um, Mick O'Driscoll. I was lucky enough to be part of it. There was Peter Stringer, who was a couple of years behind me. Anthony Horgan played for a lot for Munster Leinster. So we are just in there like any other school team enjoying it. We were very successful. Um, I suppose my abiding memory, looking back originally, was my junior's cup year. I think I played out half and we didn't, we didn't get past the first round. Uh, we played Munchens away from home and in those days the tribe was worth four, uh, four points. So hence we lost four nil. <laughs> uh, we were nil on the last play of the game and I got a kick blocked down and we lost four nil. And I can remember the captain coming up to me after and was like, geez, you're a real loser. You're the person who's responsible for us losing this cup. And I was like, what a, what a horrible leader. Like, what a yeah. and it, but it was a great motivation. I learned from it uh, unbelievably well. Um, even when I was in second year at the time because I was overage in my current year group I think I trained with the seniors and I was the second year Declan Kidney brought me up not so much to be involved in the senior team but because my class replicated the Rockwells from half pass and the seniors were playing them the following year so I kind of got over that junior cup uh, win fairly lively and then we had some great years I played in three senior cup finals um, my abiding memory really is 100% is when I was in third year I was lucky enough to be part of a winning senior cup year um, Probably introduced me to introduce me to drink at a far too early age as well. Because <laughs> I was having it with all the senior players. It was but it was amazing. We beat the late great Anthony Foley's year, um, who played for Munchens. He was like the great captain of Munchens at that time. We beat them in Toman Park in front of a huge crowd. You could imagine the excitement. Yeah. And then I won the next year as well. And then lost probably with the best team we had, we lost because we probably got a bit overconfident. But looking back, there were great years and we're just so lucky to develop so many good players out of it. True. And like, was there ever a stage when, like, you were going through and you were obviously playing rugby and obviously experienced school life, but was there any particular moment where in school or maybe just when you just left school that you knew or you kind of had a realisation that you were perhaps good enough to be a pro rugby player? Uh, no, no, absolutely not. First of all, just, I don't want to repeat myself, but there was no such thing as pro rugby. Like, pro rugby went only pro 1995 slash 96 I was still in school in like 93, 94, 95. So there was, you wouldn't even think about it. And plus, I would have never, just my mindset, it would never allow me to think that I'm good enough to be a pro player. I wouldn't even let her into my head. I, was, I didn't suffer from massive bouts of doubt, but I always felt that if I taught like that, it would affect my performance. It would, I would think that people would call you OTT, above your station, like just... It wasn't just maybe it was a monster background in it. They don't like to sing from the hymns or from, you know, pr- overly praised back there. So it would never, never have happened. Plus, I wouldn't have let it happen to myself. It was just almost kind of not fluke your way into it. It was just like just a gradual evolution where rugby was amateur and then somebody flicked a switch and it was professional. What I would say was what, whether it was in school, whether it was in Corcon, whether it was with Leinster, whether it was Munster, I was lucky enough to be part of winning teams. And I think when you're part of winning cultures, it believes develops a bit of belief so other than that no I, I wouldn't talk about it plus I wouldn't let myself think like that it was I'd not have doubts and if I ever thought like that I'd soon get rid of it okay well then just to kind of carry on the trend of what we're going at here is I do think it is important to ask about the club game and like obviously if you look at a young lad, lad like myself and you look back at say the club game and back in your kind of generation it seemed much more important. The standards seemed to be much higher and you had professionals weekly playing, like week on a weekly basis playing club rugby. So 
basically what I'm trying to get out of you is that like how important was the club game well the club then? game obviously look it was huge and it wasn't because the standard was 50 times better I'd say some of the standard was appalling we used to play matches up in Limerick in a, in a mud field where it was an absolute kick shit and the standard wasn't that great it was just the fact that it got exposure in the media you'd have games on a Saturday in, whether you're playing in Duradoyle or up in Black Rock or St Mary's they were live in RT and you'd get five, six, seven thousand people at it and it was really it wasn't like today where the AIL is a young man's game it was an old man's game. The club was your culture. It was your, it was your enjoyment. It was your social scene. So when I joined there, I was still in sixth year in school when I joined Corcon. I was in, I think I was subbing for the seniors when I was in sixth year in school and it was, it was real eye-opener into what real life was like. It was, it was hard-nosed. It was rootless. Training was vicious. Um, it was just a great exposure to meeting people who went from work to the club. They had real lives. They had families. They were married. And you were out there socialising with them. And the unifying bond was rugby, the culture. After a match, we'd all be into the Blazers, we'd be in town, and then we'd be in Cork, say, on a Saturday night out. You'd have people from Dolphin Sunday as well, all in their Blazers, representing their teams. And you'd get to know the fraternity of rugby in, the, in, the, in Dublin, or in Cork. And it was the same in Dublin. It was just, I suppose it was brilliant just for your development as a person. There's, there was fierce rivalries, there was wins, there was losses. And just after every club match, jeez, the bar would be packed. It'd be parents, family, friends. It was just a great social scene. And I look back now on great finals that I kind of, I don't sympathise with a lot of the current players, but clubs don't seem to have that spirit anymore. Mainly because they don't get exposure. DAL is, unfortunately, is dying somewhat of a slow death, yeah. despite the fact that so many talented players do play it. Yeah, true. And, like, obviously, initially the club game was huge for you, and then that also led to you finally getting recognition from Munster and then obviously signing you and well there's a bit just before I go into that yeah. there's a bit more than that it does, it's not like you play for your club and then you go into like you, whoever's listening to this podcast can't think about the transition or the stages in development or the pathway like they call it now into professional rugby there was none okay so I um, I think I played for Irish 21s and from there I got like a development contract with Ireland yeah. There was no Munster contracts. There was no Leinster contracts. There was no Ulster. There is no academy. There was one academy in Ireland that was based in Dublin and they employed maybe six or seven players. I, there was only two professional rugby players when I started off in Cork. Myself and somebody called Dominic Crotty. I suppose I was pretty lucky in a way that he was an unbelievable professional player. But we were doing crazy stuff. I remember being in the gym, trying to deadlift over 160 kgs, benching as much as we could. We had no SNC programme. We know core stability, our diets were appalling. So I'd finish the gym session and I'd go for a curry lunch or I'd get a big like ham cheese salad, coleslaw, can of coke roll, thinking that's what you're meant to have. Yeah. But there was only two of us. And then like inch by inch, step by step, day by day, Irish rugby dragged itself from the amateur era into somewhat professionalism. But when I talk about pro, I signed a pro contract in 96, 97. I wasn't really pro till 2002. Mm. So there was four or five years where we kind of wore the badge of professionalism. Yeah. We were nothing to do with pros. We were out socializing, we were drinking too much. Even though we were training quite hard, everything around it was just unbelievably amateur. But it was great fun. You know, um, it was like to try harder sessions. Instead of doing one rugby session, we do two or three a day. We'd be in bits by the end of the week. So we overtrained. Come Saturday, you were shattered. But there was also a fierce sense of excitement. Uh, just opportunity, uh, laying a path for further generations. We're very lucky to be a part of it, and there was so many great memories about it. Um, I'll give you one quick story about it. I can remember we, in the early days of Munster Rugby, 
we used training sometimes obviously the Limerick lads would drive down to Cork or vice versa we drive to Limerick we'd always go for a lunch so we'd do two training sessions one in the morning one in the afternoon and a lot of times we went to this place called the Tennis Village and we'd go for lunch there so we'd be having carvery lunch with gravy and sauce and, and then Peter Klaas he would put the hand up the dessert car would be brought around from player to player <laughs> we'd be having like trifle and like whatever sort of apple pie and custard to be doubles and we'd go train rugby again like an hour and a half later and the coach would be freaking at us because our skills would be bad we'd be tired we were fat as head to the goals <laughs> but it was just it was innocence but it was great times as well you know mm. and like you mentioned that you kind of got those like you had got the contract in 96 97 and with that you did make your Irish debut if I'm not mistaken, in 97 against England. And, yeah. like, is there any kind of memories you have in the, over the lead-up to the game or yeah, during I, I, it or a after? Few. It actually, believe it or not, I subbed for Ireland against Australia in 1996. Um, I can remember, I think I was running with Alan Clark, who's now the Forest coach with um, Ulster at the time. And I wasn't really nervous because when you're so young, you haven't, you just, honestly, you do not appreciate it. Um, I subbed for Ireland. I don't think I played for, I might have played once for Munster, I don't think I even played for Corkon senior team at this stage. I might have been like sub for Corkon, Irish schools, Irish 21s, and then straight into something for Australia. And it was, I think, the night before the match. I kind of suddenly dawned me that I'm playing in front of 50,000 people tomorrow. I was like, Jesus, if I make a mistake here, my family are going to be so embarrassed. I got very nervous. And it was always going to come on that day, and thank God I didn't have to. There was no way I was ready. There was no way I was prepared for it. Especially um, mentally-wise, I wasn't. And then, slowly but surely, the following year, I came on against England. I think we lost 44-4 or 44-5 or something like that. Um, I honestly didn't care about the score. I was obviously delighted it came on. Um, my binding memory is basically just two... St- one, with my parents afterwards, and my parents were like, oh, we'd love to meet a few of the players. So all the, pl- all the players were in the bar getting drunk. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, like, there was these committee... Like, you'd have committees, you'd have... It was basically like a black tie affair for a charity event. It was huge. And I was thinking, like, we lost this match. We played really poorly. Everybody's getting pissed. Nobody seems to care. And then they did this tradition when you get your first cap. There was, I think, like 14 players on my table. There was seven English and seven Irish. And the tradition was, obviously, your first cap, everybody buys a new cap a drink and downs that drink with them. I couldn't barely pint. I, if I had a pint, I was pissed. I had 14, basically 13 shots. Jesus. <laughs> Mixer of wine, beer, and I was like, I couldn't even enjoy it. I, I regret it looking back, but at the end of the speeches in those days, you were presented with your cap. So I think Austin Healy got his cap the same day as me. He missed getting his cap because he, he was out on the porch in the foyer of the Berkeley Court getting sick into a bucket. <laughs> so they asked me to come up to collect my speech. I was getting sick in their... Um, in the restaurant at the Berkeley Court, I didn't get my captain about six months later, so um, you can imagine the turmoil my parents must have faced. Yeah, and uh, just thinking and trying to visualize that from my point of view, like, do you think it was a stage of Irish rugby where the vast majority of players were kind of, you know, they were just happy to be selected, they were happy just to take part in these games and just have the kind of social banter that would come after these with these posts? Like, there didn't seem to be a huge kind of pressure from no the even like even though we were getting like we were getting paid 97 it wasn't great money in comparison to today's but professionalism is the worst tag you could ever associate with it mm. we overtrained 
we were knackered, we were poorly prepared, our jerseys were hanging off us. Just the committee members of the RFU seemed to have a better time than the players. Um, we, we really weren't players. We're, we wore the badge of professionalism without meeting any of the standards whatsoever. But it also was amazing fun. You sit down with your opposite number after games, you swap your jersey, you sit in your dressing room, you go for a pint. It really was great fun. But no, like winning, there was no culture of winning. There was no culture of having a coach say, okay, this is how we're going to build a team. I need maybe these 12 or 13 consistent players to go through the next two or three years. We had no game plan. The, chain, the team I played with my first cap, there might have been ter- maybe 12, 13 changes for the next cap. Mm. Oh, you couldn't develop team pattern. I don't know if we even had calls. There was no defensive systems back then. So looking back, I, I was wondering, like, what were we doing in training? Um, it was tough, though. They were real old, hardy men. It wasn't, there was no skills, really. I can remember Brian Ashton came into the Irish team when I was there, and he was a generation ahead. He wanted to play wide, expansive, decoy players. We'd centres who couldn't pass the ball left or right. You know, it was... <laughs> so they'd be forced to carry, essentially. Well, no, because they'd be forced to pass, but they couldn't pass. <laughs> so instead of having coaches saying, okay, this Irish team is very limited, they're not that fit, but they could have some good attributes, maybe kicking, chasing, harassing... You know, good spirit about them. We are made to play the game that was just alien to us. I was slightly different. I was... I wouldn't say I was slightly different, but... I grew up at Ron Nagara. Like we yeah. Primary school together, secondary school together. We were not overly professional, but... I used to always practice my passing. My next neighbour when I grew up was somebody called Michael Bradley, who captained Ireland. There's over 45 caps. He lived in the house next to me. I teamed up with these brothers in the lawn and bishops on passing, kicking. I had three brothers. All we ever did after school was passing, kicking... I do extra gym sessions. I'd always felt that if I did more, I get one street ahead. Um, it kind of suited me in the early days. I think I had definitely a head start on a lot of players. Um, so yeah, interesting. Well, moving on, I suppose the main talking point really of this is your monster career and the fact that you were one of the few people who obviously swapped monster for Lancer. But if we could start off on your basically your monster career and how you thought the initial stint went and then obviously with that how did you deal with the transition from eventually moving on from monster to obviously their big rivals leinster yeah you're covering a lot in that question there Richie. um i was a monster like four if not five years um the first few years were just the shambles of shambles you can imagine in terms of organization um We'd be staying all over the place. We'd meet, like we'd meet the day before some of our games. You might have a training session that night where you have to put through the entire game plan. In one and you're playing, you might be playing like a South African team. You know, so it was crazy. But it was also, there was great characters there like Peter Clossy, Mick Galway, really hard those old men. I was, I basically kept my mouth shut. And I basically had a great fun watching the lads play. They were great characters. Um, my early days of Munster, I can't even remember the coaches, to be honest. It was very haphazard. We didn't, weren't that successful. And then Declan Kidney, my old school coach, who coached me for three years in Prez, got the Munster job. He brought in a bit of consistency, a bit of selection, um, proper gym, really good mental coach. Um, and you can see it just day by day by day. Things were improving. The Munster clubs were hammering the Lancer clubs, the Ulster clubs, especially in the AL. I think they won 10 years in a row. And you can just see... The professionalism eking it slowly but surely. Munster was great in those days. I never really cemented my place as a starter. I was in, I was out. And when you're in and out, it's very hard to get some sort of 
um, confidence and consistency and then uh, Stringer eventually took my place in Munster I, I think I only started maybe 15 to 20 games maybe 10 hiding cup games I was in and out especially when Declan Kidney took over um, but there were exciting times too you could see Munster on the way um, and then I was leaving I was like will I stay with Munster Stringer had my place he was obviously a super player brilliant passer the game um, and I sat down with Declan Kidney will I stay will I go he obviously saying stay fight for your place I guarantee you more more time but when, you, when you're not a number one in the team it's I knew I had to leave so I, um, I arrived to Leinster and I, um, I met Mike Ruddock actually one day in uh, Gleason's pub in Booterstown um, and he was like oh Brian welcome to Leinster it's great to have you here he laid out all the plans for the year he was delighted to have me um, there was a great scrum athlete in New Zealand Sue Foster who just left so he was delighted the following day he turned up and said he's leaving to Abbeville <laughs> oh god and I was like Mike yesterday you told me that you're delighted to have me so I was like what the hell have I just done yeah I've left it's not like leaving Munster I left my best friends yeah like the players I grew up with in primary school in secondary school all came through a lot of like the current Michaels players they were my best friends my holiday friends my drinking buddies my golf buddies our parents were best friends growing up I left that basically I left my life to Leinster and then all of a sudden the coach kind of half wanted me there is gone I was like what the hell have I done here this is going to be the worst this will be the shortest professional career ever but luckily, of course, Matt Williams came in, and he was the best thing that ever happened to Leinster. Um, he was Australian. He was confident. He was like a politician. He had charisma. He was hard-nosed professionalism. He brought a brilliant assistant with him, Al Gaffney, went on to coach Munster. And those two pair just revolutionized Leinster in terms of training, facilities, diet, video review. And I was hungry to learn. I was hungry to prove. Yeah. So for the next four or five years, I definitely played my best. And with that, like when you were just you know obviously moving from Munster to Leinster was there any kind of signs of hatred or any nasty kind of comments made it's interesting dynamic um it is I suppose I'm not the type of person if I'm if I'm fighting for another scrum half position I'm never gonna be friends with that scrum half so when I left Munster and you're playing against them that friendship kind of went out the window for a small bit it's not like now as well where players move left right and center of the provinces prior to me moving I don't think there was ever a player during the professional era that ever moved problems. It just wasn't done. I was possibly one of the high-profile players. I was capped at that stage for Ireland. It was a massive move. It got a lot of media attention. So I was delighted. To, Leinster were amazing. The players were so receptive. All my best friends when I grew up outside of rugby actually moved to Dublin during the Celtic Tiger. were making good money. So I was hanging around with them. And lo and behold, the very first match I played for Leinster was down in Musgrave Park in Cork couldn't believe it I was like oh for Christ's sake could you not give me some betting in time yeah so we went down to Musgrave Park we even trained in praise my old school the day before the game and I was like what's going wrong with my life like what has happened here yeah, yeah. I'm now a stranger I was getting off the bus there was chance right you cheat traitor <laughs> piss off back to Dublin you traitor um, once we were in the heyday we lost but we played I played pretty well I was happy with my first game but going into the after match function upstairs afterwards was just weird um, I had a bit of a fight with Mick Galway in the pitch because I'm a mouthy enough person on the yeah. pitch. Ron Agar was given out to me for having a fight with Mick Galway. It was a surreal experience. My, I think my parents found it way harder. Okay. They weren't. They were living in Cork. So my dad turned up to the match wearing a Leinster jersey and like he was a monster man true and true for his life, his life. Played in different clubs. They're all around West Cork. So he bought into the move and he loved it as well eventually. But you know, I think it was tough for my parents to 
they probably lost a lot of friendships out of it as well in those early days. And did they play a role in your move? In your no, I don't choice? think they did play a role. I was. No. I think I'm deter- like once I have an idea in my head, I just go through it. I don't need too much um, backing or not. I don't think I asked. My- I think they would have been supportive. I rang actually Eddie O'Sullivan, who was I think was the Irish coach at the time, or just about. I was like, "What do you think of this move?" And he was like, "Geez, I'm not too sure you're good enough to get off the left 13. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Really?" That was a really good insight into my future with Ireland there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, thank God, you bollocks. But, uh, <laughs> I was like, sugar. And then I, I was like, look, I believed in myself. I was going to do it. If I didn't move, I was stuck. I was done. Yeah. Stringer was a super player. Um, and it wasn't even Stringer was such a brilliant player. Any player who got a regular time with Ronald Agar was a brilliant player. Yeah. So when I played Ronald Agar for Corkon for years and years, I was the flavor of the month because Ronald Agar was so easy to play with. Conor Murray was the same. Like, Ron Agar's win percentage, doesn't matter what scrum half stays the same. When Ron Agar wasn't there, his win percentage, or the muscle percentage, when Stringer played with a different out half is way less. Ron Agar was so pivotal in that. I think history kind of shows that a small bit as well. But, uh, no, Leinster were brilliant. I think my first, my first day in Leinster was meant to train in UCD gym. Yeah. I was haunting my brother in an apartment in Dublin, so I moved in with him. We're in the early 20s. It was brilliant. We enjoyed the social scene of Dublin. I got lost on the way. I took the canal. <laughs> I turned left instead of turning right. So I was like 40 minutes late. Oh. So Lencer, I arrived into the Lencer gym. It wasn't like today in the deer of like, uh, with media, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram. Nobody knew I'd moved. Yeah. So I arrived into this Lencer gym and like Brian Driscoll, Shane Horgan, Reggie Carg and Victor Costle, all these players were like, what the hell are you doing here? <laughs> and I was like, I've signed. And they're like, for who? <laughs> they thought it was a training session. I was 40 minutes late. I probably wasn't the greatest. I was good enough condition. They were like, oh. But after that, they were brilliant. Except I couldn't, I couldn't have been more um, amazed how Lancer actually supported me. That's good to hear. And, and it might be hard to put your finger on, but like, I'm sure now it would be far more distingu- distinguishable since we're in the pro era. But at that time and what you experienced, obviously playing for both clubs, like what was the main differences between Munster as a club? And Lancer as a club. John, I've been asked that question, not of late, obviously, but when I moved originally, what's the difference between Munster and Leinster? And honestly, very little. And people are always like, oh, come on, there must be. Any group or sporting organisation you, organi- you play with, the team has characters. It is as quiet men, it's funny men, it's drinkers, it's comedians, it's shy men, it's quiet men. And both Munster and Leinster had that. Um... When you play for a team, you develop a passion for that team. Both teams had that. I would say one thing that Leinster really had a bad attitude in terms of they had to win with style. Yeah. So when I was there for the first couple of years, if we didn't win by throwing the ball around or playing at all costs, it almost felt like we didn't, you didn't enjoy the win. It was Munster, any win is a good win. I think Munster actually, or Leinster have evolved that, especially when Checker came later, is look, winning is the most important thing in professional rugby. You must develop a balanced kicking game, a hard-nosed forward play. Like they call us the lady boys in Leinster for a long time. And they probably rightly so because we lost games we probably shouldn't have lost. But like when I arrived at Leinster in 2000, I think we won maybe 85% of our Heineken Cup games, whether home or away. just happened to be that we lost in the bigger ones. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I would say that, that Leinster were determined just to play a beautiful style of rugby that probably wasn't suited to the time at, at that time, but... No, I, don't, I really don't think there was a big enough change as people like to make out or want to make out. Yeah. And you've mentioned a few coaches there. You've mentioned Kidney, O'Sullivan, Williams, Cheka. 
and like thinking back over the career like who do you think was who did you basically have the best relationship with or who in other words did you well, think well that's a very yeah that's an interesting question I think having a great relationship doesn't mean you're going to have a great you doesn't mean he's the greatest coach yeah like a coach's job isn't to have a great relationship with these players it's to get the best out of them the best out of them so if somebody asked me when I was playing that you have to do a one-on-one video analysis session with Declan Kidney I'd be like please send me back to the medieval times to get to be a body yeah. it was torture I hated it I didn't get on with him personally our person, our, I think our personalities are very similar it was awkward it was tense I hated them I don't think it was great for my career later but he was probably one of the best coaches I've learned from yeah Plus, he was my school teacher. So he did translate, like, if you have a bad attitude in class, you have a bad attitude in the field. If you're unorganized off the field, you're unorganized on the field. If, you give away, if you're disrespectful to people off the field, you're disrespectful to your teammates, the referee on the field, and you're going to lose matches. He was a brilliant motivator. Like, I can remember playing with Declan Kidney once. We played against Connacht, and we had kind of, like, mixed monster team. When I mean mixed, like, we had Keith Wood playing with us. We had Mick yeah. Galway. Instead of Ron Regar, we might have Killian Keane, Jeremy Staunton, like all internationals. We are, and but for some reason before, he had us hating Connacht, thinking that they were earning more money than us. That, and we were like probably hundred more caps, way more well paid, but we destroyed him because we were so angry. Yeah, he had some. It's that ability to get the best out of his players. Uh, as a coach, individually, he was kind of poor. Probably the best coach in my term was Matt Williams. He came over from Australia, and he, I think he. I know Checker gets all the praise for Lencer. Um, changing from an amateur ethos to pro ethos but it was really Matt Williams we were changing the back of cars in Belvedere as a pro rugby player we used the change rooms in Belvedere we'd be hot and cold baths but there'd be no hot water it was bleak mm. he got us to join Davis Lloyd David Lloyd Jim he got us to um, do I can remember actually we were doing a pool recovery and we were so bad at swimming Matt Williams gave us swimming lessons really? yeah it was appalling plus we probably drew, uh, turned up drunk the following morning <laughs> half the time as well but he was adamant that we're going to improve standards. And he was so charismatic. We played brilliant rugby for him for two years. He probably just lost his way a small bit, got a bit... Um, I don't know, I think he was looking after himself on their team a bit in the end, but he was a super coach. Gatlin was interesting to work with. Yeah. He kind of gave me a lot of opportunities with Ireland. Didn't say much. Um, when he said something, you kind of listened to us. Technically, very poor coach. Like, if you saw one of his training sessions, you'd be like, what the hell is that? Yeah. But he could turn it on when he needed to do. And he always sent something. He was holding something back or he was about to explode. And he brought great success to Ireland as well. Um, but Matt Williams was one of the best. I remember a story we played with Matt Williams. We beat Munster in the first ever Celtic League final. Yeah. Obviously won the well-known victory at this stage. We're down to 14 men. Came back against the might of Munster. Was, and obviously this is prior to Christmas. And to say we celebrated. <laughs> <in the stadium. laughs> uh, we still had two Heineken Cup matches to go at the end of January. I think we, we just drank the shit out of it for really? two weeks. It was a disgrace. And I can remember um, probably two weeks before the Heineken Cup matches, Matt Williams put a every day in January on the board. And we all just come up individually and tick how many days we drank in January. Really? <laughs> yeah. And he had something like DNFFJ, apologies to my language here, do not F up January again. Jesus. We played so poorly we didn't qualify from our group at that stage and we should have qualified. We were outstanding. Basically, we drank celebrating that win. And I always hear Brian Driscoll on podcasts saying, that win came too early. And mm. it did. We played brilliant, but we weren't professional enough. Um, and other than that, what other, Michael Jack was a great coach. Hard nose. Um, no bullshit. Vicious. Off the field was more important than on the field. You have to carry yourself well. You have to treat your... Uh, 
people you work with with respect uh, but I also had a few bad coaches yeah you know there was a really good mixture there um, Michael Checker brought in the backs coach David Knox oh yeah I've met he was a real, before yeah he was a really horrible person we'd always ask him Dave can we do some extra passing or kicking he was like oh no no sorry I'm very very busy and then we'd arrive to training sessions to our own kicking and he'd be out there with Brian O'Driscoll and Shane Horgan and Dennis Hickey so a lot of coaches had great time for the superstars yeah but they really didn't have time for the average player and that's what broke Scott's eventually Matt Williams didn't have great time for the average player and that eventually built resentment it built like different cliques within the group and if ever a clique came in that was pretty much the end of that team interesting and I just I just like hearing that it's 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 crazy to think that like such a big European team like Leinster now if you think of it like that that just would never ever ever happen and obviously there was a transition between you know like I think from what you've said about Matt Williams is I almost feel like he was two or three years too soon for Leinster and that essentially coaches were coming in and just basically kind of carrying on the good work he did but also being aided by him Matt Williams came in and revolutionised Leinster like anybody knows him did but the problem is he kind of lost his way at the end he brought in a few people who didn't work with were too greedy and he pissed off to Scotland Mm. so he signed a three year deal originally after two years he left and Gary Ella replaced him and Gary Ella was like a step back to the 1960s we used to go up to Kylie's maybe to have lunch he'd be having a pint of Guinness would he so his first day in Leinster I arrived up to Kylie's for a bit by the way we're having carving lunch so it wasn't much better but we'd have have a session in the afternoon I saw Gary Ella having a pint of Guinness another time um there was a great forwards coach called Roly Meads, really old school scrummaging coach. And he, he said, look, there's a great prop playing for Trinity. Gary, will you come out on Saturday to, you know, keep an eye on this prop? And Gary says, absolutely. So um, Roly Meads arrives, I think it was about 10 minutes late, and he can't see Gary L anywhere. But in the corner, just by the old pavilion in Trinity there, there was this fella sitting out, like underneath a sombrero with a, an icebox. He was having a few titties sitting on the deck chair <laughs> watching the match. And we're like, this is the Leinster coach. We played Biritz in one of the most important quarterfinals we've ever played in. And we did nothing for the week preparation. Like, we didn't even look at Biritz. Gary just... And we knew we were going to lose before we even entered. He just... He was very unorganised. So that set Leinster back an awful lot. Then Declan Kidney came in. We won seven out of seven... Or six out of six in the Heineken pool. But then he pissed off back to Munster. Left us in tatters. Yeah. And then Checker came in. So if Checker came in after Matt Williams, I think Leinster might have won the Heineken Cup a bit more. But, you know, that pain was needed for Leinster to go through. Okay. And like I'm, it's a tough one. Another, I keep asking you tough questions. So well, actually, kind of, Richie. yeah, I kind of feel actually bad for you. But um, like, no, what it's... what do you see when you look back at all this? And like, what do you see as the biggest accomplishment? Ah, uh, like I'm painting some of the funnier stories of it. I've loads of comp- like, but if you I won three pick senior, one. like I pick well, one. I couldn't name one because everything's different. You have to take it on its merits. Winning the senior cup when I was in third year was one of the most memorable experiences of my life. Yeah. I even remember the program of that match day. Like most of the team were in sixth year, and on their pen picture was like, David wants to go into engineering in UCC, Michael wants to do law in Trinity. It said about me, Brian wants to do well in his junior cert. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. I was in third year. That was amazing. One two other, another final that was amazing. Um, winning the air with Cork on for the first time was amazing. I was captain on the field. It was like, you know, people who grew up in school. All went to Corcon, all won that. It was like a sense of amazing achievement. Yeah. Um, like, obviously, your first cap is a wonderful experience. Kind of washed over me somewhat because you're so young and naive and slightly immature. Um, P3 
playing for five years for Munster, another six years for Leinster. The longevity, I, it's not even the longevity. I think my greatest accomplishment is probably nearly every team I won was a really high winning success rate. I it's not obviously down to me. I was blessed with, with sing, um, playing with a lot of good players. But I brought a lot of intensity with that as well. And I might not have been the most flashes in terms of breaking speed, but we won majority of the games we played. And that's probably the lasting legacy I would say I have. Okay. And obviously the flip side of that coin would be a low point. And is there any particular game or period of you know matches or when you were in school that you just look back on and just was like, that really was the lowest? Yeah, I wouldn't have any in school really, to be honest. Um, yeah. I think we got the most out of what we did in school. I'd say there's a number of low points. See, low points are the best ones. Mm. They really are. If you don't enjoy those low, like the low periods are so dark in rugby that when you get to the other side, it's just like you actually even appreciate them more. Yeah. Like I obviously had an awful lot of injuries and I was kind of stupid. I never told the coaches my injuries because I was so determined to play. I remember we played against Toulouse and Donnybrook. We beat them by 45 nil. I tore my bicep off the ball and ripped it. It's still ripped to this day. I didn't even tell my coaches at halftime. My bicep was basically torn in half. My arm was hanging off. I was not coming off that field. But that was like a year and a half later then I dislocated my shoulder partially because of the bicep. I didn't tell my coaches that either, by the way. Did you play the full match? Yeah, no, well, I was just taking off about 10 minutes to go because we're winning so well. Oh, but yeah, okay. I was not giving my scrum off an edge. Me in opposition. In hindsight, would that happen today? Absolutely no. not. If no. you're injured... You're looked after. You're taken care of. There's all these metrics to show if you're fatigued or not. I just wasn't giving that up. So that was probably a uh, big regret. I played with too many injuries. Another big regret is I didn't pressurize the coach enough when I wasn't playing. Yeah. Like in now looking back, I heard that Ron O'Gara would write letters to Declan Kinney, ring him up every time. Why am I playing? Especially Eddie O'Sullivan, the Irish coach at Gatland. If the coach didn't pick me, I just said nothing. He just doesn't want me. Whereas. If you actually put pressure on coaches, they're human. Yeah. They'll kind of get you back in there, you know, if exactly, you keep on yeah. top of them. They don't want conflict. So I should have done that more. I, I probably just, I wouldn't say I just took the easy option. It was just, I'm very, I, when I was younger, I was a bit shy, a bit more uncomfortable. So I never really fought that. Um, what other lows are there? Jesus, some of the Irish games were so unprepared. It, it was just symbolic, but that wasn't more me. Um, we lost the Heineken Cup semi-final against Perpignan, you know, which everybody slags me here about. The elephant in the room. Really, I heard Brian Juskill recently was like, nothing to do with kicking or me or anything. It was, we weren't ready. Mm. Matt Williams, who was one of the best coaches I had, I said earlier, lost the absolute plot. For two months in a row, we had like a 40-page booklet on Perpignan. We tr instead of having, we used to have these brilliant tactical decision-makers meeting every week prior to a match, where it'd be the hooker, yeah. The number eight, the nine, ten, fifteen, and maybe the captain, but their captain might have been hooker. So four or five maximum. I can remember a week before the Perpignan match, we had thirteen decision makers in the meeting. It lasted an hour and a half. Gosh. After that, the whole squad came in. We met for another hour. We were just—it was Drained. paralysis by analysis. We were—they ruined it for us. We all played poorly as a result. We should have won that, but I think Lancer needed to go through that pain as well. Munster did it before in semi-finals and finals. It was. We weren't ready to win. We weren't mature enough as an organisation. Um, but it's also a great experience. It's like, God, I've learned so much from that. Whether I was coaching in the future, whether I was playing in the future, whether I was just doing anything in the future. Yeah. You know, so it was... Other than that, no, it's, it's a great experience. Rugby's... It's like being in a fun prison for 10 years. Maybe 12 years in my case. I know prison is the wrong word, but you basically are, but it's fun. It's yeah. like you're in this excitable wonderland 
And then all of a sudden, you're out of it. It's gone. It's just so many good times, but you don't appreciate the good times because I would never celebrate. So, sorry, I wouldn't celebrate, but I'd always be fearing that if I get too cocky here next week, I'm going to play crap. But then I also took the downs. I wouldn't go into a match if we lost, or into the bar afterwards if we lost. I go home. Really? Let's go yeah. home. I couldn't. I couldn't. It was all my life. I feel people look at me going, "What a loser!" Yeah. You know, whether it was after a Cork Hall match or Leinster match, I would not go out if we lost. I would never go up to Kylie's if we lost. People were like, "What an utter failure!" Is nothing in his life. Whereas if I won, I'd be straight. You'd up be there the first. The lad, yeah. First guy at the but That's bar. a terrible balance too. You know that it is yeah. anymore. Terrible balance. Now it's you know you have to have a balance. You have your friends, your family. It was all or nothing. We had nothing else. And do you think with by saying that there was such a pressure in your mind basically to win, essentially, and that like it would completely affect your mood in the next few days, like did you think that affected some of your say when a big game would be on the horizon and say you didn't play your best, would you like sometimes put that down to the amount of pressure you put yourself under yeah, as an individual? I, I don't think it does, I, it wasn't really down to pressure. It was just down to self worth. Like when you were involved in rugby Especially in those early days, it was professional and nothing else. Nobody had a business. Nobody was doing extra degrees. I actually did a bit at the end of my Leinster time, right? But in the early days, that was it. You trained all day and you played all day. If you fail at your job, it's not like, God, I got bad results in my leaving cert history last year. Every, the entire country knows about it. It's not in the P. It's just yeah. I know about it. It's like, that's disappointing, but we'll improve it. If you play bad, everybody knows about it. And then you get paranoid, like, this journalist never gives me a bloody break or... Even what I was going back to saying earlier, a lot of the best players used to ring the journalists and give out to them if they wrote bad. I never knew that. I would love to. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be on the phone 24-7. Jeez, yeah. what are you saying about me here? You're not giving me any credit. Um, I did think I got a small bit of, uh, I wouldn't say harsh criticism, but slightly unfair criticism at times with Leinster because um, in France, a nine who goal kicks and is reasonably successful at it is like, Le Petit General. Yeah. Running the team. Brilliant. So I arrived up in Leinster playing nine. It was going great. It was fantastic. But we know a goal kicker. I went through about 10 different out halves. And then eventually it was like, Matt Williams, a coach, and Czech, the coach, and others. Will you kick? And I turned into be a reasonably good kicker. I think still fifth highest point score and pretty high percentage. But if that was any other, if I was a Leinster player goal kicking, I think I would have got more credit. The fact that I was just a bit of an outsider. Yeah. We can't criticize Bernard Driscoll. So let's criticise Bomber because he missed a few kicks. He was the go-to guy. Yeah, and I think I might have missed maybe two or three in a couple of big games. Other than that, you still wouldn't get the credit. Whereas yeah. if I was in France, like a fella called Michelac, they would have adored you. Yeah. You know, Irish are very critical of the Irish people, I think, at times. I think that reflects as well in the coaching nowadays. If you think about it, not you don't really see any of the Irish coaches coaching the Irish provinces. Yeah, it's, it's, I think it's something too with the Irish accent. We just do not praise our own. If you look at Declan Kidney... He's won the Grand Slam. Yeah. I think he's won two Triple Crowns, maybe. He's won the Irish under 20 rounds World Cup. He's been to over 10 years, he's been to four Heineken finals, one, two. Unlike um, the current coach, uh, Joe Schmidt, who obviously is the best coach probably ever, got out of his quarter final every single year for 11 years in a row. Won two Irish 21s, Triple Crowns, won the Irish schools, Triple Crowns, won like four senior cups in a row. Probably Ireland's most successful coach ever. Yeah. And is hated. <laughs> Joe Schmidt is one of Ireland's best ever coaches. Didn't get out of Europe one year, but still won the Amelin. Won two Anakin Cups, never won the Grand Slam, never won the Triple Crown. Obviously, he's brilliant. But he, if he ran for president, I think he'd win. <laughs> Wouldn't he? 
Maybe. <laughs> if Declan Kidney ran, he'd be shot in the back. Hated. Eddie O'Sullivan won three triple crowns in a row. Is despised. Yeah. No, so we obviously have something about it, the Irish mentality. I don't know what it is. And like, I just found it strange not to obviously dwell on the topic, but like even when, you know, like Leinster were looking for a new coach recently and, you know, when Connacht were looking for a new coach, like whenever you see the papers or the media covering it, or even if you see any bookmakers, you never, ever see an Irish name, no matter no, how good really they are. No, value ourselves. That's one of the greatest things Kidney ever did when he was at Munster. He always used to say, we don't believe in ourselves enough. Yeah. You know, I still think the Irish... No, I don't think the Irish coaches get a fair crack the whip. It happened in Munster and it didn't go well, so I think everybody's branded as a failure as in terms of an Irish coach as a result of that. Um, Leo Cullen seems to be doing a great job at the moment, but no, the Irish people... Look at... Um, who's the Kilkenny hurling coach? Brian Cody? Hmm. If he was American, there'd be a stadium named after him. Yeah. There'd be a road named after him. A he'd be He'd be at every single motivational self-help talk there is. He's one of... Yeah. I don't know how many All-Irelands in a row... Probably the greatest coach Ireland's ever had. I don't think he's ever talked about, is he? No. It's not that I know. So of, really, anyway, you know, we just love we love dishing our own for some reason, which is a really bad habit. And obviously, I have to ask: Was there ever a stage in your career where you thought maybe you know Leinster's not doing it for me? Maybe Munster's not the club for me? And did you ever think maybe I should just chance my arm and like? Because nowadays you look at you look at Johnny Sex and you look at Madigan. There was that kind of there is an option now to actually go abroad and I'm just wondering was there ever a chance in your career where you thought, hang on, I've just been offered a chance to play in the UK or play in France. Yeah, and no, um I'll get to that in a second, but to be honest, all I ever really wanted to be was a club one club man. Um so I always wanted to go from school to club to province and then possibly retire, but obviously professional yeah. rugby changes and all that. Um so I was in Corkon for most of my career. Um I loved that. Um, I didn't really want to leave Munster. Obviously, you're moving your life. So when I went to uh, when I left Leinster, obviously that's a big enough um, transition. I heard Ronald Garros saying actually recently that it's only really the aged fringe players that can move province, and there's probably some merit in that. Like, would you imagine Brian O'Driscoll playing for Munster? Would Mick Galway play for Leinster? Would Simon Best play for Connacht? Well, or Rory Best? Look at Robbie Henshaw. He left after they won the league. Yeah, Connacht. maybe leaving Connacht isn't as big a stain as it is. But yeah. by and large, it's mostly yeah. just on the fringe players. I think it's a math. And even for them, for me, it was the biggest shift ever. So I never wanted to become just a mercenary. It just never suited my mentality. So yeah, when I was finishing up with Leinster, uh, I went over to Bristol for a few days. Again, I was, uh, went over there. I, can't, I think the coach was uh, an ex-English scrum-off called Richard Hill. So I went over there for a bit of a bit of an interview, a bit of a semi-trial. Not a trial, but... I can remember he asked me to bring my boots over, so I did a passing session with him. Yeah. So remember, no, I'm 30, about, <laughs> just about 30, about 100 Lancer caps. Maybe I was been involved in like maybe 25, 30 Irish games, nine caps, 40, 50 Munster games, pretty well experienced. Yeah. He's trying to teach me how to coach passing. <laughs> so I was like, what the hell is going on here? Like, <laughs> and his passing technique I felt was crap as when I was like, get me the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah. They offered me, I think, 70,000 sterling over two years. I was going on 30. I hadn't finished my college degree. I had to go back and finish that. And I was like, all right, in two years' time, I'm in the middle of nowhere. I have to go back. Where am I going to go back to? I was like, let's just pack it in. Yeah. Pretty much like my body was, I'd lost a bit of speed. It wasn't as fit as it used to be. It was like, here, look, I had a good innings. Let's get on with life. And I knew life transition was going to be pretty bleak. 
well, bleak slash fun at times as well. But no, I said no. That's it. Time to and it was like that. That was the moment where you just made up your mind. You were like, you know, the body's had it. I've had my time. Or what was it still? A- no, my actually, my time was actually my last. I actually played. I was on like a development slash training contract for Leinster or Munster my very last year. Yeah. Where I was basically finishing my college degree in UCC and then I was going to do the master's in education and become a teacher the following year. So it wasn't really that professional. It was the year before my last five months in Leinster. I was like, what the fuck's going on here? Yeah. Um, Michael Check, I was injured. I tore my, I, I actually tore my other bicep as well. So I was kind of injured. And then when I was coming back, Michael Check had my third choice. In those days, you were playing Leinster A matches. And they're not like Leinster A matches today, which are kind of glamorous. Yeah. They're all up-and-coming players, mad keen to show and press. There's great opportunities. It was a mixture of random club players who are useless, yeah. um, some young academy players, and then disgruntled, bitter people like me who were on the <laughs> yeah, Who did want to be there. Who did want to be there. Basically, you're like, Christ, get me back into the big arena, please. Yeah. But I remember we played in Clown William. And think of this, like a dirty, mucky pitch in Clown William grass up to your knees, dung from horses all around the place, and I was playing against Christian Cullen. He was just coming back from injury from Munster, and I can remember it was this young hooker for Leinster, I can't remember his name, absolutely whipped Christian Cullen apart in the spear tackle. And I just kept, I can remember just watching him while the play was going on. This is the greatest fullback probably the world has ever seen from yeah. New Zealand, right? He had horrific injuries. He got speared in his head by this random nobody from Leinster hooker in the middle of a shitstorm. It was snowing, sleet, miserable, with like cow shit on the side of the leg. <laughs> and he got up, he kind of stood around and looked around the place and was like, where has it all gone wrong? Yeah. <laughs> and I was looking at him and I was thinking, where has it all gone wrong? <laughs> <laughs> so touché. Touché, right? So I was like, Christ, what's like, and I was still on good money. Like, yeah. That's hardly a decent 11, but I knew it was like, I was, when, once I was training with the randomers in Leinster, it wasn't like, no, it's team spirit. It's rotation squad. It was just that squad. I was like, all right, time to get out of life, move on. So I went back home. Um, actually, I was going to go back to uh, Munster on a two-year uh, two-year uh, contract. So yeah. Decky rang me, you know, hello, Brian. Yeah, yeah. Remember me? <laughs> yeah. And I was like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I have a two-year contract for you here from Munster. Will you come home? And I was like, brilliant. I was going to go home anyway. Mm. So I was like, geez, Decky's come true for me after all the years he dropped me and stuff. Yeah. I was like, wow, what a nice guy. And then he didn't call me for five months. Oh, God. And I kept ringing up and no answer. And I was like, eventually I got through to the manager and he was like, sorry, we've given your contract. And we split it in half and gave it to two young people. And I was like, were you not meant to tell me about this? Yeah. And I was like, look, I kind of didn't care at that stage. I was going back home. I was going back being player coach for my old team, Highfield, where I started. Yeah. They were paying me really good money. Um, great money to go through college, pay my mortgage, all that sort of stuff. And then Decky, clever Decky, like, you come back and I'll give you a development contract instead. I really, really wanted to tell him to F off because mm. I never really respected him in terms of just the way he treated me in the last few years. But I was like, let's just use Munster here. Yeah. I was like, they'll pay me, you know, bits and pieces, not massive money compared to what I was on, but solid money. I'll get my degree. I'll finish that year out and move on. So my last ever game of professional rugby was against Newport Grand Dragons in Musgrave Park where it all started. We were 45 nil up or something, and Declan put me on for the last two minutes. <laughs> so after a career which stand pretty, you know, yeah. made a fair contribution to Irish rugby. Oh, definitely, yeah. Got two minutes against Newport, and into the dressing room afterwards, no speeches, no nothing, on my boots, left, that was it, never played pro again. 
So no. when people see Brian O'Driscoll in the Viva Stadium, oh, I know, they yeah. get the flags, that is not reality. Yeah. It's far from it. Most players don't even know they're going to be retired. It's just tough luck. I knew I was leaving, so I'd, I was back into UCC. I was back into my third year history and geography in college. I was back in my local club. I was back in my own house I'd rented out. So I, was, I had some semblance of what direction I was going in. But it was still a tough transition, that's for sure. And you say transition there, and obviously, you know, with the events there with, you know, that happened a few weeks ago, and it's such a such a big part of rugby now is pros becoming ex-pros and just not knowing how to fill that gap or fill that void of constantly being in a, like, as you've pointed out, like, you start in that bubble when you're a young kid and you're surrounded by all your mates. You go on to maybe club, then you go into pro, and for 20, 25 years, you're with the, you could be with the same people you grew up with, or if not, you're with the same people every day. You know what you're going to be doing every day. And then, as you said, suddenly, just like that, yeah, it's, it's done. How, how did you actually make the transition it's tough. as easy as possible? It's tough. Or was it just, I didn't make it, it easy. It was, it was, it was very, very tough. It it's tough to like make. Like, you go from, like, I was on so many great tours. I went to South Africa, and South Africa, and it was like the, the last, the great amateur slash professional tours, the crack was just mighty. I went to Tonga and Samoa. Not a beautiful tour. I remember actually, we're in Tonga and we went, we played Tonga. The day after the match, we got to go to this pristine paradise island, like take out a boat, the whole squad. And there was a rumor going around it during the days, stay until the last boat leaves, stay until the last boat okay. leaves. But it was only certain people who got it and I got it because I was kind of good crack. Yeah. Didn't mind an old pint or two. So eventually two buses or two boats leave. This is like six o'clock. There was an interim to piss up on this Tongan Island like it was Ronak Ara's birthday or something. So about twelve of us arrived back then about eleven o'clock that night. Eddie O'Sullivan et Truus. Really? But it was a great experience, you know. We loved every minute of it. Um, and then you go from that to earning big money, to being on media coverage, TV coverage, to zero. Done. So I woke up one morning after uh, my last game. And actually I can remember sitting on the edge of my bed and I was like I have nothing to do. <laughs> and then I was like, no, 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 no. Brian, you have nothing to do. Like, I didn't have a job. I didn't have my degree finished. My money from, Lens- or from professional rugby had stopped. I had like four or five investments in properties. That, how am I going to pay these mortgages if the rents don't come in? I was way over mortgage, way over leverage. I was like, what am I going to do today? So for about three months, I was like, I shall play a bit of poker. So I played a few tournaments of poker, got pretty good. Went over to Singapore, played a tournament where it was a 5,000 euro buy-in. I didn't pay the 5,000 euro. I paid, <laughs> I paid this like two, 200 euro called Satellite. Okay. And it was 200 players in. The top three players get an all-expense page, an all-expense package to Dubai, uh, Singapore. So I went over there. Obviously, didn't win. Thank God, unfortunately. Put me in for first prize. Tony G, the famous poker player, won it. But then I was like, obviously, oh, can't be a poker player here. I'm not making any money. Yeah. And I was like, look, I just go back and finish my degree. Um, so I went back, finished my degree, and the following year I applied to do my HDIP, I didn't get it, because my degree wasn't a good enough standard, because I just left it, and when I was in my early years of rugby, it was like getting past levels and missing out exams, so I was useless, so I didn't get my degree, so I went back to my old school press, and I did a bit of what you're doing, Richie, a bit of bluffing around, <laughs> a bit of hanging around. Learning and, your trade. I was basically <laughs> learning my trade, yeah, I was driving the minibus for tennis teams, so remember when I was going from professional and international to arriving the minibus in the school in, within three weeks? Yeah, it's... And I was like, what the hell's going on here? Yeah, exactly. And I was driving... I was, but then I got into coaching the juniors team there. And I was coaching Rory Scan, who's now 
in Munster and Leinster or Munster in Ireland. I was supervising some classes. I wasn't teaching, but I was just in there supervising. I was supervising Deccan Kidney's son. And I was like, geez, this really has come full circle. Deccan yeah. Kidney used to teach me. No, I'm supervising his son in class. Um, and then I got enough uh, merits that I got my dip the following year. But it's, it's not even that. It's, when you talk about the transition, it seems like there that I had a jolly all time. I wouldn't go to a match, basically. I couldn't go to a Leinster match. I couldn't go to a Munster match. I can remember going to a Munster match versus Leinster with my dad and my brother in Tolman Park. And I was like, what am I doing here? I felt embarrassed to be there. People were like, what do you mean? You I felt embarrassed. People would be, I, this is my head thinking now. Oh, this fella, he used to play rugby. He's no nobody. He's nothing. He's nothing. He's like, oh, he used to be average or decent enough for rugby. Like, what's he even doing here? He should be out there playing. And I can remember watching Dennis Hickey, Jonathan Sexton, Contepomi, all these players that I used to play with for six years, go through blood and sweat and tears with, yeah. out there playing. And I was there on the side of my dad. I left at halftime. My dad was like, what's wrong? I was like, I just can't watch that. Yeah. So I don't think I went to game then for about four or five years. Then I got into coaching. Then I get into teaching. And then eventually, eventually, many years later, you kind of like, she's had a great career. Yeah. She's, that was a great time. But those six or seven years, you have a feeling of certainly depression. I was definitely depressed for a couple of years. Not badly, as in terms of like, yeah. but it was like a loss of identity, loss of self-worth. What am I good at? What have I achieved? Was it even pointless playing rugby? So then you're like, maybe I shouldn't have played. I wish I didn't play, maybe. God, why actually was it? Damn, I wish I didn't have to play rugby. I wish I was like every other 31-year-old, 32-year-old who's stable in a, um, a good job, settled, happy. I was like, fucking nothing here. I'm yeah. finished. I'm broke. I'm, I had a, a property in England I had to sell. I lost 70,000 sterling. I had another property in Cork I had to get rid of. Lost money out of that. And then eventually just things... I think if you believe in yourself and you treat people well, things start to turn. You know, I got a bit more confidence. I really enjoyed teaching. I felt I was good at it. Got into coaching. Felt I was good at inspiring younger people. Um, made some really good financial moves. And then slowly but surely, you kind of come out of that cloud... Yeah, and you can kind of see back in it, but it's still not easy. I still yeah. don't enjoy going to games. True, not at all. That is interesting, and I've I've heard I've actually read even snippets of interviews where people just say it's so tough to, you know. I remember reading quotes from say Lewis Moody, the former English flanker, and he was saying it was unbearable to go back to Twickenham when he was arguably in the prime of his career, but injury took that away from him. I know it was different circumstances with you, but. Regardless of how your really your career ends, it's just the fact that that kind of you know that lift that energy you get from playing is never going to be replicated again. No, it's not. And that Brian O'Driscoll fairy tale ending is it's kind of ruined it for so many other people. I think. Yeah. Because people are like oh, you get it's almost like you get all these magical dinners in England and Dublin, a bit like O'Gara had as well. You know, you have hundreds of people giving you a testimonial you're getting huge financial payments, you're getting your tax back. Whereas the reality is for most people is they haven't invested their money wisely. Yeah. I was lucky enough, my dad was a bank manager. I had some bad investments, but by and large, it was pretty cute. I bought a few properties at a really low time, came out of it okay. But most people are indebted, can't, like they're really struggling. They have no sense of identity. Um, they're probably doing a job they bloody hate. Like I'm privileged to be working in St. Michael's College, that's for sure. And it's actually... Believe it or not, teaching is very similar to professional rugby player. I have an itinerary I have to do every week. Yeah. I have to be at 11 o'clock on a Monday. I know where I'm meant to be. I can, but I also get great time off. I'm kind of my own boss. You know, 
Tim is pretty much a lazy fair attitude in terms of if you do a great job, he lets you do your great job and gives you the confidence to explore yourself, your own teaching style. Whereas if I had a nine to five job, I honestly think I'd, I'm not too sure what that happened. I know I bumped into on Redden recently, he was like, half the people in my company know I'm only there because I play Leinster and I play for Ireland. That was, that's a terrible thing to have. Yeah. You know, it's, you're always kind of proving people wrong. But it's a tough transition, that's for sure, yeah. Some people, like Paul Wallace being there getting sick, other lads be almost crying, the captain be roaring. You're never going to replicate that, and it was just so, so special. Going on tour, I can remember going to France for the very first time playing for Munster. I think it was 96. We might have lost it to lose by 60 points. 60 points. But we didn't care. Mm. Getting on a trip to go to France to play a match. We're on the same tracksuits. The excitement, like the crowd shouting, Christian Califano, Frank Turner, these amazing props. We didn't care. We were in the, in the function afterwards. These marquee French bands sucking down the wine, having great experience. You're earning great money. You're tra- All I ever wanted to do was train. That was more enjoyment than playing the matches for me. Out practicing, passing, kicking, loving the competition with my teammates, loving the challenge. It's, look, it's a wonderful, great life. But there's also tough parts of it as well. And even now, so, more so because of media, um, just the media. Uh, Social media. Yeah, yeah, you're just so exposed. And what I also find these days is, even when Jimmy Goffert was in Leinster, he was targeted by the media, by certain yeah. people on Twitter. And once one person gets in that agenda... It's just like a steamroller and you cannot stop it. They got rid of him. They got rid of other people. It's so dangerous. You know, so it's... Well, they needed a scapegoat once Sexton left. They were like, no one's ever going to be able to replace him. And once Goffer came in, they were like, regardless of the results he puts in, we are not going to accept him. Right? Yeah, it's a bit like O'Gara left as well. There was a few scapegoats there. Yeah. And it takes a couple of scape- scapegoats and then eventually they find somebody like, life has to move on, so they'll take him. But it's tougher. Like, you need an awful lot of mental strength now. Yeah. Like we're outside most matches drinking and socialising you can't do that anymore no you know um, but look there's positive and negative it was, it was a great experience it was you don't fully appreciate it during the time mm. and before you know it it's like sugar this is over bang it's done yeah and you go from good money to zero money and losing table tennis matches well, <laughs> haven't lost many of these table matches table tennis <laughs> matches yeah thank god and the competition's not great Michaels oh well we'll see we'll see um well, anyway, before we finish and wrap this up, I'm going to ask you a few quick fire. Absolutely, looking a forward to it. Quick fire questions that. Worst people I've ever had, Richie Allen. <laughs> <laughs> that was first on the list, so good to get that one out of the way early. Um, but no, I'm just going to, you know, just polish them off. Don't even think about your. Absolutely, let's go, Richie. Come on, come on. So, your favorite food? Sushi. Favorite stadium you ever played in? The, uh, just in Toulouse the, the local stadium there Stade Michelin I think it's called okay. or I, I'm not sure what the name is but playing That's, in Toulouse was a great experience um, the toughest player you've ever played against Trevor Brennan and that's in training where he kicked the shit out of us <laughs> well that still counts would you rather a night in or a night out out would you rather a bath or a shower shower what would your favourite film of all time be Shawshank Redemption what is your favourite band, musician? God, my taste in music is absolutely appalling. Uh, if I had to go for one, it'd be... Um, Don McLean. Best scrum half in world rugby currently? Conor Murray. Lions tour this summer? New Zealand or the Lions? 
Lions. Lions. <laughs> and last but not least, who do you predict to be lifting the Champions Cup trophy in a few months' time? I, I actually, even though I'm from Leinster and I support Leinster and I'd even like Monster to win it, um, I really would like Claremont to finally do it. I think they deserve it, but if they get an away draw, I don't think they'll win. So I, I'm, I think the momentum is with Munster, but Leinster is just so much quality. If I had to put money in it, Leinster at the moment, they're just flying and they're brilliant to watch. Okay, that's a fair shout. Anyway, that's pretty much wraps it all up. I want to thank you, Brian, for being on the first episode, and hopefully not the last. Hopefully the last. <laughs> hopefully not the last episode of uh, Rallon's Rant. Um, but anyway, I want to thank you. Okay, come on, Richie. Hearing your stories. Hopefully it's good. Well, look, the reason we did it for me anyway was there's a lot of Michael's players going through this process in the moment. We're very lucky. An awful lot of great coaches here have developed a lot of talent. And they just need to know that have a balanced perspective, have a balanced life when you become a rugby player. There's more to it than just the glamour. Super. Okay. Thanks a million.